The million dollar question, how do entrepreneurs transition from self-employed to owning a business that turns a profit? My name is Chris Waters, and this podcast has the million dollar answer. Welcome to CEO Secrets. Hey guys, it's your host, Chris Waters of CEO Secrets. I'm excited to be joined with Greer Allen, the founder of Boomtown, one of the leading CRM platforms in the real estate space. I was lucky enough to be an early customer of Boomtown back in the 2009-2010 era when um, there weren't a lot of solutions in the real estate space. And Boomtown has has grown to be one of the leading CRM providers in the entire industry. Greer regularly speaks at Inman and all the leading conferences around the country. You guys are the behemoth in the real estate space and most importantly have been able to maintain it as other people have been coming in, driving down the price and doing various things to crowd the CRM space. So congrats on your success, Greer. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm looking forward to this. So, you know, I, I'm going to, I don't want to botch this story. I've heard you say it a few times, but my understanding is you started Boomtown taking out some money on that first house you owned. I did. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, back in 2000, uh, 2006 is, is when we got started. And just a little of my background, Chris, I, I grew up in a family of real estate agents. So my brother and my dad, both real estate and developed a passion early on, you know, before even, you know, going off to school and uh, I worked for a, a large residential brokerage here in Charleston for a couple of years out of college and then started a digital advertising agency after that in, until 2006 and really just wanted to get back and focus in real estate specifically and build a product because I knew building a product would be a way to, you know, to impact more lives within the industry. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, we, we were self-funded from the get-go. We spent all of 2006 really just trying to understand where we could make a real impact on the industry, given you know, the knowledge and experience and, and uh, skill sets that we had as a, as a founding team. And, uh, and in 2007, uh, right before the bubble burst, you know, actually took out a, a home equity line of credit to, uh, to fund the business. So uh, it was, it was, uh, great. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was scary. We had a lot less, uh, didn't have kids, didn't have a wife at the time. And, uh, you know, my wife, that it now was my girlfriend then. So she had a pretty good paying job. So she was, yeah. she kind of was my sugar mama. So, but, uh, but yeah, we, we self-funded it all to the equity in our home. So, you know, we've always believed in the power of home ownership and that's just one very, very big example. We would, you know, we wouldn't you're, be here talking today without the power of home ownership. You're a, you're a young guy. When did you graduate college? Graduated in 02. And so you had a couple of years, a digital ad agency world and, you know, and, and I'm assuming you were, I mean, did you come from the product development space? Like, you know, development, like, I mean, I did. you did. Yeah. Okay. I do a lot of mentoring and with a lot of early stage entrepreneurs. And, and so that's one thing that, you know, was a, an advantage for me going into this space is I had the domain knowledge of real estate being around my dad, and my, my brother and all the research that we, you know, that we poured in, in 2006. And as well as the ability to actually write software myself. And so I did uh, computer science at Clemson and uh, go Tigers. And, and, yeah. uh, and so that was an incredibly valuable piece because that's one stumbling block I see a lot of people have if they're going into you know, the technology space is, is having that technical co-founder or that technical you know, capability in-house. Yeah. You know, it's very hard if you're trying to outsource that. So, you know, something just like reflecting back on, God, like the last 12 years now, something I felt like was really distinct and a competitive advantage for you guys was 
the user interface, it was beautiful, like so well organized. I mean, I have a Salesforce instance and, you know, spent, yeah. you know, seven figures on it, have a Salesforce administrator, developer, have all these apps and HubSpot. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a beast. I still have a Boomtown platform though. And my salespeople like Boomtown more than Salesforce. Absolutely. Um, so how, like, how did you find somebody to help you build the UI side of the product to make it, I mean, it's, I mean, it's top notch. And, you know, you probably already know this, but like, I feel like all the competitors the last 10 years have basically ripped off your user interface, <laughs> right? So like you guys are pioneers with the user interface and your salespeople suck at tech adoption and just using the damn tool, but somehow you made it like very organized from a, UI UX perspective, like how did that come about? Where is that you? Did you partner with somebody? That's a, that's a great question, and that's that's sort of the you know a, a good lead into you know team building and uh, and how important that is, and, and how important that has been to the success of Boomtown. So, I was three months into starting Boomtown, and and you know I knew that I could you know build the product. I knew that we could research the industry. I knew that we could you know over time you know, working hard on defining a business plan, really and researching, you know, with potential customers, finding product market fit. Uh, the one piece that I didn't have in terms of my skill set was user experience design. And so this was back in 2006, uh, but I truly believed in the necessity of a great user experience back. And actually I Googled user experience design, Charleston, South Carolina, and this is back in 2006. And there was only two results. And if you can imagine, you know, Google only putting up two results uh, for, for a search. That's how, you know, user experience just wasn't a, wasn't a term back then, really. One of the people that popped up on that list was Cooper Bain, our co-founder. And, you know, I met Cooper. Uh, we were set to meet for about an hour. I was going to hire him to do some consulting work on a project that I was working on for a, a large broker in uh, Augusta, Georgia. This is prior to us really, you know, defining what the product would be for Boomtown. And you know, we had a one-hour meeting on the block, and uh, and it turned in, quickly turned into a four-hour meeting. And and we really just um, you know aligned very much in what we believed was you know the cocktail to make a great product. And it wasn't just about, you know, providing a great experience for consumers. It was also about, you know, thinking about agents. Are they going to adopt this? You can almost think of an agent as a consumer, essentially, in terms of their technology adoption in, in 2006. And so that's where we, where we spent a lot of time and focus on that. And that's where a lot of, you know, I'd say the steel sharpening steel, Cooper and I going back and forth with one another on, on what was right down to the pixel level. And that, that really was a, you know, a core tenant of Boomtown from the very get go. Hmm. Interesting. So we fast forward 14, 15 years now, you guys have hundreds of employees, you know, there was a CRM that was a competitor to you guys still kind of is called commissions Inc sold a couple of years ago for $237 million. If I'm not mistaken. And um, you guys are obviously much bigger, et cetera. So you got, you know, I don't know, I'm just throwing out a number here. You got a company where it's called half a billion dollars, something like that. You have a lot of money invested in the uh, real estate space and the success of agents. I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, there's, there's a lot of money coming into space, a lot of money coming into real estate, people ultimately trying to turn 
real estate agents into basically Uber drivers. Right. You know, like the way I see it is, you know, Zillow bought showing time for $500 million. I'm sure you saw that. And that's a, that's an interesting strategic move because at a certain point, if, if Zillow can integrate the lockboxes with the app, let consumers self tour properties, Zillow's a licensed broker now. I mean, they're selling a lead at the bottom of the funnel and they could legit become a pretty big marketplace to, you know, greatly diminish the role of the agent, you know, and have, and have a pretty big negative impact on the teams out there. What's your take on that? Like, you know, I guess twofold, like for people listening to this show that are in the real estate industry, have a brokerage, have a team, you know, how do they prepare to compete with that? Like, what are you guys doing on the product side to help customers stay relevant and, you know, not uh, get in a position where they're having to, you know, become some kind of referral partner. And and by the way, these referral partner deals are not like what people are used to. The, the right. agents are collecting, like, I don't know if you heard about this, but Opendoor on their back end of their platform, they have a deal set up where the consumer does a Zoom session with an Opendoor agent after the consumer has already walked through the house. And when the agent does that face-to-face Zoom session, they're walking them through how to write a contract. And they'll do four to five Zoom sessions a week and convert 40 to 50% of those into contracts written. Wow. And they're getting, and they're paying the agents they're paying the agents 18% of gross revenue if it was a 3% deal. I had I had a buddy of mine send me this, this video of them doing it. He's like, you won't even believe this. He was a referral partner that was typically paying out a 35% referral fee. And then they flipped the script, right? And the agent doesn't even see the house. They don't even meet the customers face-to-face. It's all via Zoom. Wow. No, that's that's really interesting. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, I, I guess my take on on this, Chris, is I do believe that you know that that real estate is inherently local. Um, I do believe you know that there are going to be players out there like Open Door and Zillow that are going to continue to you know try to look for ways to disintermediate and and capture more of the market share. But if you look at most agents and in, in in terms of what you know what drives their business, it's, it's sphere of influence and past clients and relationships, you know, um, that they have developed over the years. And and really where Boomtown senses, you know, is you know, sort of in this space where we're trying to empower the local brands, you know, and from the very get-go. Uh, our mission has been to make real estate agents successful. And and you know, I d- I do think that there's a there is going to be a time where, you know, where a lot of these folks that are sort of living off of Zillow leads or, or whatever portal leads or, you know, let's call them referral leads. And, and they're, you know, one referral partner is making up 75% of their business that, you know, there'll be increased in leverage that those lead providers have over, over those teams. And they'll have to figure out new ways to, you know, to generate their own business. And that's, and that's, I think where, you know, where Boomtown is, you know, sits today, you know, I mean, what we do is we generate leads on behalf of our customers to their own, you know, branded website and, uh, and continue to drive them back to that consumer experience, you know, keeping them off the portals or at least keeping them engaged with the agent on that side. But, you know, I think that they're going to have to look for different ways to generate business to, in order to keep the share of wallet that they deserve. Yeah. Do you see Boomtown adding on to the Boomtown app a self-tour option for consumers to use? 
You know, potentially it's something I don't, I don't think that's in the near term future It's certainly not something that's on the roadmap today. Yeah. Um, but you know, we'll just, you know, we have to keep up with what the consumer wants. And and one of the things that I see, Chris, is the consumer does want more choice. You know, the consumer does want an iBuyer option versus a, you know, a full service option versus a, you know, maybe something like what you're talking about, which is, you know, lower touch option. And I think that's going to be the future of where this industry goes is, is being able to, you know, the winners are going to be the ones that are able to offer those different choices to the consumer. Mm-hmm. So let me go back to go a couple steps back. I mean, you've got hundreds of employees now. And, you know, you don't get to hundreds of employees unless you're a good leader and you surround yourself with good leaders. What, you know, tell me about, you know, in maybe the early days or, or, uh, you know, at what stage did you start bringing in key leadership besides your co-founder to start building out departments and things like that? What were your biggest ahas? Like, you know, what would you say is like your greatest secret to identifying, selecting, you know, getting the right leader in place? Like what's the greatest aha you've had over the last 15 years? Well, I can tell you, Chris, that uh, it's it's been trial by fire ever, ever since, really ever since we got the, you know, we, we got, we came out of Delta mode, so to speak, in, in 2008. You know, which was an interesting time to be starting. You know, starting out in the industry right after uh, the financial crisis hit us. Uh, but you know, the product was very well received in the marketplace. A lot of word of mouth spread about what we had built and brought to the market. And uh, honestly, we had the tiger by the tail. And so, right out of the gates, it was uh, it was hyper growth is how I how I describe it. And you know, we had to make some decisions quickly and, and we, you know, we made some early hires and, you know, had, you know, got to a team of about 25. Uh, we were, you know, as high as, you know, number eight in the software category on the Inc. 500 list. You know, we were on the Inc. 500 list for three years in a row. So a lot of scaling went on in those early years, but I think 2012 is where we started saying, okay, we need, we need somebody with, with great, experience in terms of scaling this business, not somebody that, you know, that can handle sort of what, you know, we are today, but, you know, looking three years ahead, who has scaled a business from, from, you know, call it 5 million in revenue to 50 million in revenue. And so we started to, you know, to go down that path of, you know, sort of building out our, you know, making our first executive hire, which is our COO. What was, that? So, was that the position when you posted the job ad COO? Chief operating officer. Yeah. That's right. Yep. And, and so was, we were was looking the first hire slam dunk, or did you have to go through a few? We still have our first COO um, wow. here at Boomtown. And wow. uh, and he's done a fantastic job. Um, you know, I, I wish all the hires would have been that lucky to you know to nail on the first go round. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, as we as we continued to scale, we started looking for people at the departmental level to we're looking, you know, starting to look for a CTO, you know, a head of sales, a head of marketing. And these were all roles that we, you know, we had some situations where we made the hire and then six months later realized that we made the wrong hire. And and I think that was pretty soon we figured out that this is more on us than, you know, than the candidates that we brought in. And so we really started to study, you know, how to make the right hires. And what you, uh, what did you read? What were your, you know, who were you, what books were you reading? Who was your mentor, coach, inspiration to getting the right people on deck? Sure. I think one of the, one of the biggest books in terms of how, 
how I think about recruiting and selecting is uh, is a book called uh, Who. It's GH Smart is the organization that you know that writes that book. It's uh, they also did top grading, I believe. Yep. Um, so if y'all are familiar with any of that, but the Who Who methodology is is what we use, and and really you know it helps you basically to you know, to you know to think about you know not just the job description, the position description as they call it. Uh, but to also think about a scorecard for what for what you're looking for, and and that scorecard really has, th- you know, call it three to five defined outcomes that you're looking for that are measurable, that you can basically look at, you know, each candidate that you have and sort of grade them on an A to B scale, A to you know A to C scale in terms of how how you feel you know they're suited to accomplish that particular goal based on their past experience. So I think that that book has made the biggest impact for us in terms of making the right hires. So one of the, the ahas you mentioned a minute ago was find somebody that's already done it. Somebody that's already successfully scaled that can, you know, from call it 5 million to 50 million. So that's a, that, that's a key nugget you mentioned. And then the second key little secret I heard you mention is clearly define the, the three KPIs that you hold them accountable to. And then, Absolutely. I mean, it's ultimately a, a black and white, yes, no type situation at the end of six months, either you, you're hitting it or you're not. That's right. Another big thing for us was just, you know, filling up the pipeline. We're in Charleston. We're based in Charleston, South Carolina. A lot has changed more recently. We've become a lot more, you know, hybrid focused in terms of, you know, where we're hiring key executives or, or any role really. But, you know, really, um, we went through a couple of different search firms. Um, so we use external search firms, but also, you know, leverage our, our, our networks, you know, the networks of the A players that we have on our leadership team to, to help recruit and find the right talent to bring into the pipeline. And we launched a national search for any sort of key leadership role that we're, that we're doing. And that's a hundred thousand dollar type of you know, yeah. search that they're running. When you think about your, your leadership team, and obviously we're in the day of COVID, lots of people want to work remote. What leadership roles do you feel like could be remote and which ones do you think need to be on the ground next to the team? You know, with the exception of, you know, sales, I think most, you know, can be remote in, in this time. And, and honestly, I think sales can too. You know, I do think that there's a lot that, that goes into kind of being face-to-face with your sales team, but, you know, we've made a few acquisitions as, as you know, uh, Chris, we, you know, we brought on uh, a broker mint this year and we're really excited about integrating that yeah. um, into our core solution, being able to provide sort of an, you know, an end-to-end front office and back office experience for our customers. And so we have sales team on the West coast. We've got, you know, we've always had a sales team up in, up in the San Francisco area, but I'd say that we've proven through COVID that, you know, with the right communication style and intentionality around how we connect with one another, uh, just about any role can be remote at this yeah. point. Cool. What about offshore? Any type of, do you think you could push the limits on offshoring leadership or, you know, maybe higher up positions? Have you tested that? Any, any feedback on testing offshoring to other countries, key leadership roles? You know, I, I think that, I think that being in the same um, or, or similar time zone is pretty critical. I think that's a very important piece because I, I do believe that communication 
in alignment with the leadership team is, is critical. And so I don't think that we'd ever look at that. We actually use some, you know, offshore consultants early on in Boomtown's history for some projects that kind of predated the product itself. Yeah. Uh, but those didn't work out for us. Now I know that a lot of other companies leverage offshoring and, and they do it well. But for us, I think people you know, on the leadership team appreciate being able to, um, to drop some time on somebody's calendar throughout the workday and have a healthy work-life balance of not having to, to get on at you know, 9 p.m. or you know, 10 p.m. at night uh, yeah. to, to have those, those conversations. Kudos on Brokerment, man. That's, you know, we went and researched all the, my, my real estate group did, we researched all the best back-end accounting, reporting, transaction management platforms, and it was the best by far. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, we're, we're super excited about it. I mean, we, we did that about three or four years ago, Chris, and, and you know, Brokerment at the time was just focused on transaction management and, and to see what they had built in the, in the last three years and how much they'd innovated around, you know, a full back office suite of, you know, transaction management, commission automation, which is just, which is one of the you know, most sought after pieces of what they do and how that flows directly into the accounting module. And now you can, you know, pay out agents directly next day through ACH payments. It's, yeah. it's very, very slick. And we're really excited to have them yeah, that's as part awesome. of the family. That's awesome. So would you say like in the, you know, maybe the first, I don't know, like I'm, I'm, I want people to, that are listening to this to, understand like where the roadblocks are from a revenue perspective. So for example, I think most people can probably like grind their way to like 5 million in gross revenue. And then like, you got to get some good players to get 10 million. And then it seems like there's a whole nother roadblock to go from like 10 to 50. For you, what were those roadblocks at each of those revenue stages? Maybe yours were a little different, but you know, we talked about leadership, you know, you talked about early years of product development, product design, things like that. What other kind of big ahas did you have as you guys grew revenue? Yeah. I mean, in, in the early days, Chris, I mean, we, you know, I'm talking about probably the first three years from 2009 to 2012, maybe 2011. The, in those years, we were such a small team that everybody was in the same room essentially. Uh-huh. And uh, you could literally just, you know, departments were three people max, you know, yeah. and, and so, you know, communication was not an issue and, and really, you know, having defined teams really wasn't even necessary. We had a very, very flat organizational structure at that point in time. And I think that was the first, you know, going from that to a more defined structure was the first real roadblock in terms of that I experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly knew how to build a great product and build the technology behind it and and sell it. And, uh, you know, but when it came to, you know, how do we do this at scale? And that's, I think that, you know, that five to $10 million mark that you're talking about um, is where you really start to have to bring in leadership that, you know, is thinking day in, day out about their specific function, whether that's customer success or sales or marketing or, you know, or product development, et cetera. That was the first real, and I think we were probably closer to 10 million and probably it was, you know, because we were growing so fast and we were, succeeding despite ourselves at that point, you know? And, uh, and so that, that was probably the first period of time where, you know, where things seemed a little bit out of control and the growth was so fast, you know, growing thousand plus percent year over year. It was, it was insane. And so it was a crazy time. That was certainly one of those points at which, you know, we had to stop and, and not only think about just 
the team, the leadership team itself, but also think about, you know, our culture, everybody in the company at the size, you know, 25 employee size realized that we had something unique and special as far as the culture and, uh, and, and the mission, you know, everybody was bought into this mission of we exist to make real estate agents successful. And I didn't, I didn't want to lose that as we scaled. And so, you know, we, that's when we decided to define our core values. That was, you know, a lot of energy and effort to do because we had everybody's involvement in that process, you know, but I'm, I'm so glad the return on investment on that through the years has been amazing because, you know, when you include everybody in that process, you're getting the buy-in from the ground up. You're not, you're not pushing something down to people, you know, it's, it's their, it's their core values, right? What, what was, what was the next big sticking point for you guys? Like what was the next big revenue ceiling, proverbial ceiling where you felt stuck? I'd say right at about the 20, 20 to $25 million mark. And that, that mark, um, that was, that was when we, we started to really go out and, and try to, you know, hire key executives in, in each respective function of the business. And this is where we made a couple of, of errors, you know, in terms of those first hires that we made and, uh, and they were brutal. And, you know, the company that I mentioned earlier, GH Smart, you know, I think that what they say is, is, uh, and this is the, the people that wrote who a hiring mistake uh, will cost you uh, 15 times the base salary of the, of the hire that you make. And that, that can add up really quickly. And I think, I, I think that number could be even larger if you don't identify the wrong fit within that first six month period. Um, so what was, so what, what was the aha, you know, obviously you don't mention names, but like, what was the position? What was, you know, what went wrong? What can other people learn from that mistake? Yeah, we, we went through, um, you know, a CTO. We went through a head of marketing. We went through a head of sales. Our learnings through that were, uh, were not that, you know, that, that we hired someone that turned out to be somebody different. It was, we didn't do the right, you know, we didn't put what needed to be put in to, to make the right selection. We didn't, you know, we, we got fatigued in the process of hiring. We got, we, we basically got to a point in that hiring process where we settled, you know, for somebody that we thought might be a, a decent fit, you know, but you can always point back to the very beginning and where you make that hiring decision and, uh, and basically say, Hey, we knew this, you know, we knew this from the get go. And so what so was that bullet point to be more specific? Like what's the bullet point that you missed? Don't let search fatigue dictate your hiring decisions. But you know? like the, the candidate, right? Like the individual candidates you hired in those roles that didn't work out. What were the characteristics or the actions they took that ultimately made them a bad hire? You know what I mean? Uh, very different in, in each one of those instances. So we learned something new from each one of those. But what I would say is that at Boomtown, we, we hire for culture. And, you know, having, having the person that we know is going to, you know, collaborate uh, with the team, with the leadership team in the right way is the rest of the leadership team is, is absolutely critical to their success, no matter how great they are um, and what they do. Our culture will spit somebody out uh, very quickly if they're not the right, if they don't fit from a culture standpoint. And, uh, and you know, I think going back to what I said earlier, making sure that they have the experience of scaling from one level to, you know, to where you're going, yep. uh, where you see the company going over the next three to five years is, is another critical piece. 
and you know, do do they truly feel impassioned by the mission of the company? I think that's another very important thing. Is uh, you know, you're going to be you know spending a lot of long hours, you know, really focused on in our case making real estate agents successful. Are you aligned with that? And yeah. uh, and you know, asking the right questions to flesh that out is is absolutely critical. So culture is a really tricky thing. It's ultimately how people feel about each other, right? And the feeling they get being a part of the organization. And so you can go through the interview process and have multiple people on your team interview, but then like they show up and it's just not the same, you know, vibe and feeling everybody had during the interview. So did you guys put something in place to like make that sure that didn't happen again? Like, was there some little silver bullet in the interview process to make sure you, you, the people would gel? This is kind of what I was talking about earlier about, you know, just having a bottoms up culture where, you know, where everybody feels it's their responsibility to, you know, to, you know, to continue to maintain the culture going forward. Actually, this is not something that we push down to, you know, our frontline people, but uh, a group of folks came to us and said, Hey, we want to have a culture interview as part of the, as part of the hiring process. And they wrote down all of our core values, all eight core values, and came up with questions that would help them to identify, does this person, you know, exhibit this value in their in their day-to-day lives or in their past job experience? And they put them into a big bucket and, you know, cut them up and put them into a bucket. And so for each job interview, they would just take one out the bucket and have a 45-minute culture interview where they frontline people, managers, directors, whatever would be asking. And and this is all the way up to the executive team, you know, executive hires would go through this process as well. And, uh, and they'd give us either the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And, uh, and I think that that has helped us in a couple of scenarios that, you know, either, either we knew that they would not pass that test and we, we didn't, you know, continue conversations with them. But it, it's a it's a gut check for us. But also, you know, we've had a few times where leadership candidates have, have failed that culture interview. Yeah, man, that's a big nugget right there. Culture interview. That's a big nugget. Yeah. And, you know, when you put a lot of things like that in place, I can see how interview fatigue can kick in, especially when you need, when you need somebody. You're like you need someone in that role like yesterday. Yeah. And you know, like so much better to wait, Chris. That's that's what I've learned is it's so much better to wait until you have the right person. And boy, will it it's painful during the time where you don't have that person in the seat. Mm -hmm. But if you bring the wrong one in, you know, you start thinking about that 15 times salary that it's gonna cost you to make that sort of mistake. And uh and that's that's one thing that I, I will never go back to is, you know, saying, Hey, we need somebody right now. Let's just, let's just bring this person in and see if they work. It, it, it just never works out. To change the subjects a little bit. I remember a couple of years ago, you guys, I think took some investment from a private equity group, 20 million yeah. bucks or something, right? I don't know what it was, but yep. um, looking back on it, was that a good decision knowing what you know now? It, it was, it, it absolutely was. I think, you know, <laughs> we were pretty picky about who we were going to bring onto our board as well. Um, you know, we saw it as it's a marriage. You can't get a divorce from your, you know, from your investors uh, and people that are on your board. And so we, you know, sort of took the same learnings that we had from, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people to that level as well. So we really weren't looking at, you know, the business card or necessarily the, you know, the logo 
that was on that business card. It was more about the person that we were going to be dealing directly with on our board when we made the decision to to bring in those outside you know partners and and they have served as as tremendous thought partners to me and the executive and the rest of the leadership team at Boomtown. And you know, I can't I can't speak highly enough of of the of the folks that we brought onto the board to help us as thought partners going forward. I've, I've heard you say you don't have any interest in selling Boomtown. And if you have an equity partner, is there any concern that they're going to want to get a return, right? From their uh, eventually they will. Uh, yeah. There's no doubt about that. But you know, there's there's a lot of ways you can you know that you can, yeah. you can do that. You can we can recapitalize the business. We can you know, we can you know, take them off the cap table if, yeah. if that's that's one thing we need to do. You know, but that was one of the things that we looked for. One of the core tenants that we were looking for is that we were looking to build an enduring business in space. And and we didn't want to have the, you know, the timelines that are typically imposed by a standard venture capital or private equity group. Um, and so that was one of the one of the deciding factors that we had going into this. And in Susquehanna, for example, you know, they don't have limited partners, which typically a venture capital or a growth equity firm has limited partners that invest their pension funds, all kinds of, and they, and they guarantee some sort of outcome for that portfolio over the course of three to five year period, typically. And Susquehanna, their company uh, started the private equity shops. They don't have any limited partners in that, in that operation. So uh, that was one of the reasons why we chose them because they were ultimately into building enduring businesses Mm -hmm. with, with founders and, and being very founder friendly. So on the topic of private equity, a billionaire with a group called Vista, you know who I'm talking about, he has been buying up real estate technology platforms at the yin-yang. Vista bought Lone Wolf. You know, what else did they, they, I heard they just took down another real estate platform. You know, I mean, uh, I mean they've got to have invested in that well at nine figures in real estate tech. Now that you're the juggernaut, of the space and so many people are just pouring money in like it's insane like what's the big what's the next big grandiose plan for boomtown to stay on top like obviously the broker met and you know putting on tacking on some of these leading applications is obviously one part of the strategy but like what's the futuristic side of Greer allen say about where this business is going 10 years from now to stay ahead of the curve and, and maintain your your seat at the top of the you know the, the tech space yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. And and you know, really the you know, one of the things that I wanna I wanna be able to see, you know, 15 years from now, we're about 15 years into this. And uh and we've been fortunate enough to get to, you know, really the top of the game here um in terms of what we do. And and I want to look back 15 years from now and say, you know, Boomtown is still at the top in terms of what we do. And so uh, so in terms of, you know, what I see as the future, I mean, we're going to have to obviously continue to innovate. This this industry is changing rather rapidly for real estate, I'd say. And uh, and there's a lot of change that's come. You know, I think that, you know, integrations and, and sort of becoming, you know, sort of the, you know, the central hub of, of our customers' business is going to be an absolutely critical part of what we do uh, going forward, but also building and, and finding other, finding, you know, building additional functionality, features, products that meet the needs of our customers is going to be absolutely critical as well. And, you know, like you just mentioned, you know, bringing brokerment in-house, you know, as a, as a true back office platform and, and combining that with the front office platform really gives us 
a lot of room to innovate across the whole entire spectrum. Yeah. And so that was a, a highly strategic acquisition as opposed to other companies that are private equity based that look to, you know, maybe slam together, you know, five to six companies and exit that business in, in three to five years. It's a good yeah. strategy for a private equity firm, but, you know, we, we like to be much more strategic in terms of our acquisitions and, and really think through how that creates a better experience for our customers. If, if you were starting over today, like, I mean, Boomtown didn't exist. It's like 2006, but it's obviously 2021. It's a little bit like you're the founder of Instagram out of your college dorm room and you're competing with Facebook, right? I mean, in the real estate space, that's kind of what it's like. And so it's like for the small guys, where does the opportunity exist to pull one over on the Facebook, if you will, like Instagram did? Like where, where can the little engine that could, you know, find opportunity to grow and have success? Like if you, had to, if you were starting over right now, what would you do? If we were starting over right now, um, yeah, it's, it's a different environment that we're in right now. Massively different. Yeah, it's a totally different environment. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued by what's happening with, um, with national expansion teams. I'm really intrigued with what's happening with other models like uh, Side, for example, which I think is getting incredibly large valuation um, on you know kind of software they're providing. It's it's pretty Crazy. crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but I don't think the I don't think the mission would change, Chris. I think. I think what we're we're focused and where my passion lies is in making real estate agents more successful. Yeah. Um, I think that you know that I might take a, a slightly different tack to the to the technology and services and the packaging of those technologies and services, but you know, but that's our passion. You know, we we you know we want to we want to innovate and build build technology <laughs> that makes real estate agents more successful. We want to innovate now across both the front office and the back office. Uh, we want to bring tech-enabled services to market that you know sort of take the mundane tasks off the plate of our of our customers, so that they can focus on scaling and growing their businesses. And so, you know, okay. so you know, I, I you want know, you to think, think. I want you to think really hard about this. So, there's a book Peter Thiel wrote called Zero to One, and he says if you're going to go into an existing category, you've got to improve on it by 10x. Your only other alternative to go from zero to one and be the market juggernaut is to create a new category within the industry. So what, like, as of recent, iBuyers, the last five years, that's been a, a category, right? Like, what would be the category you would, if you had to start all over, what would be the category you would want to jump on? Or you would create, what would be the category you'd create? Get the entrepreneurial wheels turning. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like I said, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, you know, kind of thoughts that I have around just, you know, what, what is happening? What do teams really need to, to scale nationally and do what they do uh, from market to market? And, um, you know, I'm not going to give you everything, Chris, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I think that there's, I think there's some thoughts and ideas that, that, you know, that, that could be, you know, category defining things that are opportunities, you know, for, for Boomtown and for others, yeah. um, you know, and so I don't know, I, I think that the industry will change. I think more consolidation is going to occur. I think more, you know, the more professional leaders within this industry are going to continue to, you know, kind of squeeze out the, you know, the folks in the industry that, 
that aren't really in this, you know, for a full-time career, yeah. aren't really as passionate about providing the consumer with the best experience. And so I think we're focused on the right target market um, and have been for the last 15 years. And, and like I said, I think there's just be some different models and approaches that I would take to, you know, to serving them. So your, your brother runs a really successful uh, group, the casino group. He does. And what's kind of interesting of what, what's going on in like the brokerage, you know, essentially the service world of real estate is you've got people out there that have these very efficient operations, sales operations. They've got, you know, good technology they're using like Moontown. And then you got these, you know, behemoths over here, like the Zillow, the Redfin, and they've got tech, but they don't have it figured out on the boots on the ground, salespeople, the operation side, the training, all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes to make deals happen. What is that intersection, right? Because like it's like Zillow's trying to get over here, the brokers are trying to get over here. Like, right. what's, what's what's the intersection? What does that intersection yeah. look like? Because ultimately, if you can figure out that intersection, you could beat the behemoth, if you will, if you could find the intersection before they did, you know what I'm saying? Right. I, yeah, absolutely. And, and this goes back to what I mentioned earlier, Craig. I mean, it's, it's choice that, that consumers want. You know, ultimately, you have to you have to serve the consumer and the end consumer is in a place where they want choice, convenience, certainty. And I think that being able to offer an iBuyer <laughs> offer or, you know, something like Homeward. Homeward's an, an amazing company. It's grown rapidly through cash offers. And, you know, I think that the convergence goes beyond just what's happening in our industry though, Chris. I think it goes into mortgage, title, uh, insurance, and all the other all the other parts of the transaction. And I think that the folks in the mortgage industry are coming after real estate and the folks in the real estate industry are coming after mortgage. I mean, you've got the juggernauts like, you know, Rocket, um, out there in the mortgage space, you got better. That's about the IPO. Um, I think that what everybody's going after is being able to provide the consumer with choice, but also providing them with a, a cohesive experience across the transaction. And I think the winner is the one that, you know, that's able to do that at scale and I mean, provide. I want to uh, throw an idea at you from a technology perspective You've got three industry participants in the uh, real estate space, the three major players, um, mortgage, title, and brokerage. One of the biggest complaints in the industry is communication. And if you've ever done a deal or you know how the world works, you know the agent's got a plethora of things they have to do. Mortgage company has a plethora of things they have to do. Title company has a plethora of things they have to do. They're each operating out of their own operating system. And it's, it's just, there's not enough time in the day for each party to keep each other updated. Right. So why, like, what is your opinion on some kind of agnostic platform for all the market participants to create a quasi Slack, if you will, that automatically extracts the task list as they get completed and, you know, updates the consumer and each industry participant. Have you looked into that? Have you had ideas about that? No, I think it would be an incredibly valuable service. You know, I think that's, I think that communication through the transaction and just being a transaction participant as, as a buyer, you know, or as a seller, that's, that's hugely important. You know, you don't know who to call 
you know, I've lived, I've been in around this industry for 15 years and, and, you know, going through a recent purchase myself, working with my brother and, and, you know, you know, a couple of is still, it's daunting. It's a daunting task. And, and that's, you know, that personal experience just recently just, you know, sticks in my head, Chris. And, and, you know, yeah, like we're looking for ways not only to integrate with industry participants on the brokerage side, it's, it's across the segment. And I think that's one piece that, you know, the scale of Boomtown really gives us a lot of, uh, and the quality of the agents that we have within our network uh, puts us at an advantage there um, yeah. as it relates to, you know, being able to accomplish something like that. So, yes, I think, I think there's a lot of merit to what that, you know, to that idea. All right, man, we have, we only have a few minutes left. So I've got something bold and controversial to ask you. All right. You're, you're on the tech side, you know, you're not affiliated to any real estate brokerage and this is going to be very controversial and you may not want to answer, but I'm going to try to pull it out of you. What are your, what are your biggest predictions on the brokerage side from your perspective of companies that you think will, you know, just have incredible geometric growth over the years to come? And then who do you think it will be the biggest surprise that ends up falling in the background? And I don't know, I don't want to say shut down, but like they just become, you know, a non-player, you know, they, they, um, I don't want to use the word fold or bankrupt or whatever, but you know, ultimately start going on the decline. <laughs> you can't ask me that, man. <laughs> hey, maybe you can call out a non-Boomtown customer. Uh, well, I mean, you know, listen, we have clients from every single one of these, uh, every single one of these national brokerages or franchises that's out there. Um, you know, I I believe... Uh, hey, Compass, I'm not, they, they've got their own CRM. They're trying they to, do, but we have, we have, you know, tens, if not, you know, more than, you know, a hundred customers that are uh, Boomtown clients that are Compass agents. And, and you so, got Gary Keller wanted to uh, replace the billion dollar bill that agents. That's right. Okay. So no, it's, it's, hey, if you're not going to give me an answer, I, it's all right. I understand. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> here's, here's what I'll say, Chris. I, I think, I believe that the future lies in the ability to consolidate and scale. Um, Define teams. that, consolidate. Tell me more. So I believe that, you know, that the bigger an organization gets, the, the better the talent that they can bring in, right? And, and the better talent they can bring in, the more scale they can get from the operations that they're doing, uh, the more learnings they can get from how they operate in each individual market. And so when you look at teams that are scaling, you know, into different geographic areas, that gives them a, that gives them a distinct advantage. I think one of the core tenets of a successful brokerage or uh, a successful franchise in the future is one that has a way for people to expand nationally. Um, I think EXP is a is a great example of that. I think they've done a great job with it, and I think you know that Keller Williams is sort of looking to head in that direction as well. You know, Side will be set up that way because they're a national brokerage. Compass, I'd, I'd say, you know, is set up that way as well. I think the national brokerage footprint is going to be important to retain those top teams that are looking to grow their business beyond their geographic, their current geographic limitations and, uh, and just create bigger opportunities for those types of teams. I think independents that have a great culture are going to continue to, to thrive. Um, you mentioned the casino group, my brother's company. They, you know, they're a, a well-known local boutique brand that just absolutely dominates the, you know, the, the top end of the market here in Charleston. I don't think they're, they're going anywhere. 
you know, I think they're going to continue to dominate. Um, I don't, I'm not going to list anybody specifically in terms of maybe, hey, maybe instead of listing a name, maybe just talk to the service they provide or the general, you know, type of business model they have that you believe is going to end up diminishing and, you know, potentially folding. Like what does that model business model look like? Yeah, I think those that are not going to keep up the pace with providing agents with the technology and tools to give the consumer the choice that they desire, that support them in being able to provide the consumer with a seamless and, and you know transaction experience, uh, the ones that aren't innovating to try to you know accomplish those things are the ones that will fail. And I think I, I, I can't answer the question because it remains to be seen who is who's not going to go after that, because there are some brokerages out there and national franchises that are making some big moves right now. Yeah. Cool. Well, to close this out, you're not an agent. You've got a family of agents. The real estate market's on fire. Stocks are on fire. What are you what are you personally investing in? Yeah, I, you know, I, a lot in the market, uh, which has done really well over the past, you know, several years, um, you know, a lot in real estate, you know, obviously real estate having given me the opportunity to start this business is, is another, you know, investment vehicle that, you know, I leverage a lot, done some speculative investing in, in crypto and done, you know, pretty well with that. I don't know what the future lies with there in crypto, but it's been fun to sort of, you know, follow that along. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and, you know, really my, my favorite, is uh, is investing in in small you know startup businesses and backing founders that that I believe in and, and that uh, and that I can help through some of the stages that we've talked about today on this on this yeah. uh, podcast, Chris. Greer, man, this has been a great episode, guys. I hope you picked up your notebook and wrote down a lot of notes because there are a lot of golden nuggets in there and great little secrets on uh, scaling your business. Greer, thanks so much for being on the show. Best of success to you guys. I love your, you know, your platform and um, super excited about what you guys are doing. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. Thanks for being a loyal customer for the last you know, decade plus. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, man, really enjoyed the conversation today. Okay, great. Hey guys, uh, if this is your first time tuning in, hit that subscribe button. You can always watch us on Spotify, uh, iTunes, and all the other streaming services. So be sure to hit that subscribe button, tune into us next time. Bye everybody. Want more CEO secrets? If so, you can get a free copy of my book, The Million Dollar Real Estate Team at www.themilliondollarrealestateteam.com for free. Inside this book, you'll find my top secrets that we've used to net $1 million in just three years.